Welcome to Going Public, a podcast dedicated to exploring public scholarship and publicly engaged teaching in the humanities. My name is Annie Dwyer, and at the time of this recording, I am the Assistant Program Director of a Mellon Initiative at the University of Washington Simpson Center for the Humanities. The initiative's name is Reimagining the Humanities PhD and Reaching New Publics, Catalyzing Collaboration. Since 2015, two successive Mellon initiatives by this name have supported public scholars at the University of Washington, both faculty developing new graduate seminars in the humanities with public-facing components and doctoral students pursuing public projects in the humanities. The episodes of Going Public consist of interviews with Mellon-supported public scholars after they have launched their projects or taught their public-facing seminars. Please do check out our companion website, which includes faculty fellow syllabi, as well as doctoral student fellow project overviews, artifacts, and other ephemera. The podcast, along with the website, is intended to serve as a resource for scholars interested in developing similar projects and seminars. You can find the Going Public website at www.simpsoncenter.org slash going public. You can also find the link in the description of today's episode. Today's episode, Philosophers Are Very Trained at Tuning Out Things, is an interview with Colin Marshall and Ian Schnee. Colin is an associate professor and director of graduate studies in the University of Washington's Department of Philosophy, and Ian is an associate teaching professor and director of undergraduate studies in the University of Washington's Department of Philosophy as well. Ian and Colin jointly received a Mellon Summer Collaborative Fellowship for new graduate seminars in the humanities in 2020. And over the course of that summer, they collaboratively developed resonating courses that they taught in the winter of 2021. Colin's course was Respect, Rhetoric, and the Psychology of Persuasion. And Ian's course was Conspiracy Theories, Propaganda, and Epistemic Vice. In the wake of both of these courses, our conversation explores, among other things, the work of collaboration, both between students and between faculty, responsiveness to the contemporary moment in the classroom and beyond, and philosophy as a public practice. So welcome, Colin and Ian. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks, we're super excited to be here. I wonder if we can begin just by asking you to tell us a little bit more about your seminars. What were the major learning objectives? How did you scaffold the course? Just give us a kind of orientation to the work that you did in these two courses. And uh, and whoever would like to jump in first. Okay, I, I can start. This is Colin. So the seminar grew out of an undergraduate course that Ian and I developed together, an intro-level course on the ethics of persuasion. And the course went well, and it was something that a lot of our graduate students were interested in. So the aims in terms of content was to get into some of the ethical issues around persuasion, both issues focused on sort of the value of respect and treating others respectfully, respectful engagement, listening, exchanging reasons, and then also other moral frameworks, such as that of producing good consequences, thinking about systems of injustice. So in addition to content, then the last 40% of the class was all student presentations. They were in small teams for the first, and they could either do the second one they could do individually or in teams. The first project was analyzing some real world attempt at persuasion using some of the resources that we'd covered. It was left totally open to them what, what to look at and which of the resources to bring to bear. And then the second public project was to propose an intervention of some sort. 
in an ongoing persuasion attempt. And one example I gave them was, say, writing an op-ed directed at some organization that was trying to get people to do something. So an op-ed, for example, directed at uh, some local um, some local group of officials who were attempting to get people to say wear masks or something like that and helping them improve their messaging. So the last big chunk of the course was all student presentations and engagement with each other. And I left open whether they could go through, whether they went through with their proposed intervention, but they had the option of doing so. And I asked them to set things up so that if they wanted to, they could. Nice. Ian, before we move on, do you wanna jump in and, and say a little bit more about your class? Yeah, you bet. This is Ian here. So, so like Colin's class, my class focused on questions of persuasion and manipulation, but the focus was on the darker side, the ways in which uh, politicians, individuals, and technology can easily manipulate us. And we focused in particular on uh, a specific, the specific topic of conspiracy theories, partly because uh, they were very, uh, historically relevant, our first class happened to be on Wednesday, January 6th, when there was an uprising in the Capitol in Washington, DC. So students were seeing concretely how uh, conspiracy theories can affect uh, their individual lives or the, the political trajectory of our country. And uh, we also incorporated uh, a practical focus to the class. So we didn't just want to understand conspiracy theories from a theoretical point of view, but we wanted to devise strategies for uh, concrete interventions that could help us combat conspiracy theories or understand uh, when a certain uh, conjecture actually counts as a conspiracy theory versus uh, uh, something that actually is grounded on solid evidence. So. So that whole combination of misinformation and manipulation with an application to conspiracy theories was the focus of my class. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I love how you can see the overlaps and also kind of the distinct um, foci of your, your different courses. It seems like they must have worked wonderfully in tandem with one another. I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to developing these courses collaboratively, which you did um, during the summer of 2020. And also you you taught them um, together, you know, or at the same time, they were different courses, but you taught them during the same quarter. Uh, to what extent was there overlap between the courses or just um, conversation between the two of you as you both developed and taught the courses? And, and how did that shape how, you know, how, how you taught? I guess the one thing to say is that there would have been a lot more overlap if there hadn't been a pandemic and we could have just been in the department together and, and chatted. We So we had some some exchanges. I, I sat in on one of Ian's classes, which was fascinating. We exchanged some emails as things went along. In terms of development, I think I can say there's there's sort of a long history here. Um, Ian and I have been teaching, talking about teaching, and I've been learning from Ian about teaching and and about interdisciplinary philosophy classes for a long time. So there's been a buildup. Um, the summer before in the Mellon Institute was extremely valuable. I, Ian and I had a lot of back and forth there, a lot of back and forth with the other fellows. And in terms of the development process, I think we were really lucky that our that our interests overlapped completely, but our backgrounds and specialties didn't. So Colin knew much more about ethics and value theory than I did. My specialization was more in the theory of knowledge. 
but we both are interested in empirical literature and work in cognitive science and psychology. But mine focused more on the heuristics and biases tradition, sort of epistemic biases. And Colin was really knowledgeable about the psychological work on persuasion. And so that allowed us to have a lot of fruitful conversations when we talked about what we want to cover in these classes. Oh, that's wonderful. And that doesn't happen enough where people are, are in deep conversation with other faculty in their course development. What about, and, and you know, this is something that I noticed so much in, in reading your syllabi and your assignments, the ways in which students collaborated with one another in your classes. It seems like that was very deliberate, um, developing these collaborative assignments. And I'm just wondering, what were the yields of that? And were there any challenges or difficulties that came up? Sure, I can speak because my class was, this is Ian, my class was slightly different than Collins in the sense that the audience for my class was both advanced undergraduates as well as graduate students. So we had a larger number of students. I had about 30 students in my class. And uh, what that meant was we had a lot of folks who could get together and do small group work, and then they could report out and engage with the other small groups. Since this was the pandemic when we ran this class, we had to rely on Zoom breakout rooms, which do have a slightly mixed reaction among students. But I think I found some techniques sort of in conversation with other folks trying to develop effective Zoom pedagogy that really made the small group work successful. And I used the small group work in breakout rooms in every single session. We had, we had Google Docs that we used as a collaborative working tool, and they had a sort of stru structured set of directions and objective that the students were trying to accomplish in the 15 minutes that they might be in their breakout room. For example, uh, on one day, students had to do research on a conspiracy theory that interested them. And when they came back together, they met in a small group with everybody else who chose the same conspiracy theory. So there was about six different popular conspiracy theories that folks were uh, interested in investigating. And then that meant that everybody in their same small group had a similar level of preparation, but they might not have read the exact same material. And so then they put together a small report on that conspiracy theory, which then they reported out to the rest of the class. And rather than just listening to me lecture on all these different conspiracy theories, that allowed them to sort of investigate them from the inside and take a lot of the responsibility for that expertise. Every single one of our classes had that type of small group work. And I'm, I'm really happy that we incorporated that into the class. The seminar that I taught had only nine students. So as Ian was saying, there was the structural differences were, were pretty dramatic. And they were also all graduate students. One was a graduate doctoral student from education. The others were all philosophers. And I learned the hard way that doctoral students in our department don't like being micromanaged. I left things relatively flexible in terms of what they did for their their engaged assignments. I had a traditional paper writing assignment because there were some things I did want to get across, but their, their public engagement work, they had a lot of latitude on what to do. And overall, I think things, especially for the first, what I called field project, where they analyzed some real world persuasion attempt, I thought the results were, were quite good. Um, people found some really interesting topics. So one group did an analysis of a debate about people living in tents in the Green Lake neighborhood, a debate that unfolded on the Nextdoor app. And I thought there was some really insightful analysis of the back and forth there and understanding people's motivations.
motivations and the way they frame things and the underlying moral issues. That was excellent. Another group, for example, did a really compelling comparison between the ineffectiveness of the January 6th video of the rioters that was used during the impeachment, second impeachment proceedings of former President Trump, um, how that was ineffective at winning people over. And they contrasted that with um, Michael Moore's film, Fahrenheit 9-11, which arguably did have more of a persuasive impact. So there, you know, one was looking at a relatively small neighborhood conversation on social media. The other was contrasting to uh, widely viewed public films with sort of grand political aims. You know, it's it's interesting. As you all were talking, though, I was wondering, do you think there's something easier to, to sell or um, do you think students buy into collaborative work more easily uh, when it has to do with public facing work? Is there something that um, that is qualitatively different? It's a nice question. I think it's less scary for students to dive into something new when they are with some of their peers and they're hammering it out together so they don't feel isolated and given a difficult task. So I do think it helps in that front. They still need help from of scaffolding and, and examples, um, and the group may not upset that. But certainly in making the project or the prospect of doing something new seem less daunting, group work does seem very important. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, I, I think that's a really important point to, to sort of note, oh, I wish I would have done more scaffolding with this assignment. I wonder if there are other things that you all observed over the course of your teaching or um, you know, in doing the postmortem after the course. Uh, what you know? What things would you you have done differently? Uh, what what things would you change in the next iteration of the course? And you know, I think this could even lead into advice for other people planning publicly engaged philosophy courses. Lots that I do differently, but I'll let Ian go first on this one for the self criticism. So, I think one of the mistakes I made in planning out my course was I was overly ambitious with how much material we were going to cover, and this is something that that instructors run into all of the time because we have there's so many great things we want to talk about with students. And I simply have not learned from years of experience uh, enough to counteract this sort of planning bias that we have. So my hope was to actually cover a large number of conspiracy theories and literature on conspiracy theories from, from psychology, political science, sociology, in addition to philosophy. And then to also cover a lot of technologies and literature on the philosophy of technology and big data. And it was simply too ambitious to try to fit all of that in. Yeah, I think that less is more advice is really useful for people. It's just so hard to, to gauge the amount of work it will take just to set up some of this um, publicly engaged work. I think you're, that's really, really sound advice. I think the less is more applies especially when I'm considering both giving them content, their students content they're not familiar with and assignments they're not familiar with, especially during a pandemic, but even not during a pandemic, I guess I, my advice to others and to my future self who probably won't listen is to pick one or the other. So either we're gonna be engaging with material that they're not familiar with, but are still in the traditions they're familiar with, you know, mostly philosophy and maybe philosophy, philosophically structured discussions of rhetoric or psychology, and then some bold new um, public engaged assignments. Or I keep the assignments, most of the assignments more traditional, maybe throw in one bit of public engagement that's 
lower stakes, takes up less class time, and then give them some new material. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really hard balance. And at the same time, I think what strikes me about both of your classes is the way in which it offers up such wonderful opportunities to students think to think through what philosophy in particular might lend to public engagement or, or public debate. And I, I guess I just want to uh, prompt you to, to speak to that a little bit more. Uh, what's particular do you think about public philosophy um, as opposed to public literary criticism or uh, other kind of humanities-based work that's um, public-facing. What do you think are some of the specific contributions that philosophy offers? Um, and, and how did you try to um, make that apparent in the, in the seminars that you taught? I think one thing that philosophy is concerned with is normativity in, in many different guises. So actually thinking about where standards come from, whether they're ethical standards, are they relative to communities or are they somehow out there in nature in a more objective sense? And this, this idea that we can think about normativity in many different domains, whether it's uh, analyzing arguments, whether they fit certain evidential standards or analyzing people's uh, personal values and whether or not their actions live up to those values. This concern with normativity and questions of ought is something that I think is very valuable to the history of philosophy and that philosophy can add to the contemporary world. For example, just thinking about uh, questions about persuasion and manipulation with technologies, there's there's been a recent focus on STEM education uh, in America, and people tend to think of that as just hard science. Students are learning math, science, and engineering, and all they need is the training in those core disciplines, and they're going to be able to go out there and make the world a better place by their wonderful algorithms and technological inventions. And what we've discovered, in fact, is that uh, normativity is deeply embedded in science and technology. There's and these instruments, these algorithms that folks are creating are not ethically neutral uh, or psychologically neutral. And philosophy has a really valuable contribution to that, thinking about the values that underlie, perhaps even unintentionally, uh, that algorithms that surround us. Yeah, I, I agree with that. On sort of a different focus, one thing that I think is distinctive about philosophy among humanities and that is both something that it could potentially contribute, but also an obstacle is that at least one tradition in academic philosophy is very focused on thinking carefully through the logical relations between the explicit content of claims that are not situated in a formal science or framework. And this can be at a fault. So hum philosophers are often surprisingly tone deaf to the communicative force of a claim outside its explicit content. So there's, not everyone is true, but there's a cliche where a philosopher will say, well, look, wasn't, wasn't what I'm saying true? Um, even though philosophers have theories about why merely saying something true can communicate other things as well. Um, and because of this kind of focus, one, philosophers, often are very trained at um, toning out things other than the explicit content of the sentences that they're looking at, which is good and it can give them a certain sort of rigor, but it poses a challenge when you're trying to communicate what you're doing 
to people who are not used to doing that. One, because they may not see the point. But two, because you might just overlook the fact that, say, the particular phrasing that you used is reminiscent of, say, a pattern of phrasing that's connected to a tradition of oppression, for example. And maybe that's not there in the explicit content of what you're saying, but that'll, of course, throw off certain readers who aren't just focused on the explicit content. And that's something I found in, that was one of the many things in my seminar where I thought I ideally would have done more to help the grad students see how, unlike if they want to write an op-ed, for example, unlike writing a traditional philosophy paper, they need to sort of unplug their ears and start getting back to the normal sensitivities they have in their everyday life to the, the other sort of semantic dimensions of, of what they say and the claims they're engaging with. Right. That's fascinating. I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering too, if this is one of the reasons why you brought in uh, your class was very interdisciplinary. Both of your classes were very interdisciplinary insofar as they were engaging with social psychology, cognitive science, rhetoric. Uh, did you see that interdisciplinary uh, approach help with with some of that work or and or I, I guess a, a kind of another follow up question to this is, do you think that public engagement uh, kind of necessitates a sort of interdisciplinary engagement? Yeah, I personally found it incredibly valuable, in part because of the subject matter of my class, because uh, the philosophy on conspiracy theories and misinformation is relatively new. The, the, the classic philosophy papers uh, on this topic were published about 20 years ago, rather than 200 or 2000 years ago, which is the way it goes with some uh, topics in philosophy. So a lot of the really interesting work done about conspiracy theories is not just done by philosophers, it's done by folks coming from other scientific or humanistic trainings. And it hasn't even been sort of absorbed into the philosophical tradition yet, and then and then look, been looked at through a philosophical lens. So in that way, we sort of had to go straight to the source and we had to look at some of the major major empirical findings from political science, for example, on longitudinal studies of people's beliefs and conspiracy theories. And, and that kind of interdisciplinary lens, I think really helps students feel like they're being well-informed. And I guess the other thing that strikes you about, strikes me about what you just said, Ian, is um, the way in which your course was so responsive to, your course is really responsive to the moment in which we are living, right? And, and both of your courses, I think, could make use of things like January 6th um, and, and, and stage conversations around those events. And so I guess I, I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more and, and just tell other folks what you did to, uh, you know, to be responsive to the contemporary moment in the, in the kind of teaching that you were doing. Yeah, one thing I found that worked out, and I don't know how deliberate this was, was that giving students a lot of latitude in finding something outside the academy to apply this stuff to, let them connect it to things that they were already worried about and already concerned with. And, you know, I'd like to think that that could happen in lots of different courses, but I think it took a framing it in terms of this is a non-traditional assignment. Really, I want you to get outside the academy and real emphasis on that for students to feel that they could talk about the things that 
they were worried about that they were thinking about. Yeah, one thing that I actually found challenging about this point that you're raising is there was so much information just in the news about conspiracy theories that it, I had a hard time sort of keeping up with all of it, sort of thinking about the popular media and at the same time, making sure I also think about you know the academic literature. So just the sheer overwhelming amount of information because the conspiracy theory class was so topical was a challenge for me. But but like you're saying, it made it quite evident to students how they can think about what's surrounding them in their in their in their offline lives or in their online lives. And um, I mean, here's here's one example. We we wanted to evaluate the um, the effects of different attempts at combating conspiracy theories in the class. So one one phenomenon was we found Exeter uh, articles. So articles from previous QAnon believers who would then post sort of their story on Reddit or even or sometimes on a major news organization or just their own personal blog, and look at the effects and the the rhetorical situations of those kind of Exeter testimonies compared to other attempts at debunking QAnon or other conspiracy theories. And just the fact that there was so much information out there like that, that was getting published sort of, you know, every 24 hours, we would just go online and try to find more relevant information. Uh, it made it both exciting and exhausting at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I imagine it just really highlighted the stakes of the intellectual work for your students. But um but I can imagine the sense of inundation, just trying to keep up with it all. I'm wondering if just coming out of teaching the seminars, thinking ahead, if you have any thoughts more globally or uh, any kind of broad strokes comments on how teaching the seminar has shaped your own practice of public scholarship or pedagogy. Yeah, for, for me, having stepped in a year ago directing the graduate program, the the experience and the Mellon Summer Seminar got me thinking about in a much more general way about how to think about the role of public scholarship and training graduate students for public scholarship in our department. Um, and the seminar helped me appreciate that it's not something you can easily throw in to a class and just expect students to benefit from it. There has to be a process there. It's a skill that developing. You know, it would help, for example, for me to have classes, students have multiple classes where they read op-eds by philosophers on the topics to just get used to some of the rhythms and things that happen there. Um, and then for my own work, I am have this ambition to, to write a book that's not just for, you know, this tiny handful of people and try to write something for a popular audience. And I definitely benefited from watching my students' attempts to do things like that. and see in them the mistakes that I almost certainly almost certainly would and still likely will make when I when I attempt to do it. Engaging in this seminar experience has completely transformed my way of thinking about assignments and course design. And I think this is sort of consonant with what Colin was saying. Engaging in a broader publics, whether it's op-eds in the uh, and sort of popular news material as substantive readings or designing essay writing and other forms of assignments that students don't think of as just having an academic audience, but a broader audience. 
those are major skills. And so we shouldn't think that only one or two classes in the department should engage with those skills. So this made me really excited to think about the kinds of philosophical writing that we teach students and broadening it beyond the sort of five page argumentative thesis driven essay and uh, think about audience much more broadly in terms of our philosophical writing, because I saw how excited students get when they can, they don't have to stretch to relate the material they're learning in class to their daily lives. One thing I'll add um, is that I think, I think I saw in this that having different types of writing going into class can help students appreciate students who are learning how to write in the academic philosophy vein, help them understand that style better by contrast. So seeing, you know, why is it, for example, that, you know, you, right, just focus on the explicit logical content, the explicit content and logical relations between things and saying like, oh, well, that's a really distinctive form of writing. That's what we do when we're writing in this particular tradition with these sorts of aims. And notice how different that is than trying to write an op-ed or, um, so I think they're, they're really done right, which I don't claim to have done, but done right, I think it really can add not just a, a new skill set that traditional graduate programs can't have, but, but help students develop the traditional school set, skill set too by situating it. I love that comment because so often people kind of think about this as an either or phenomena and you can either prepare students for multiple kinds of careers and different, you know, expose them to different kind of um, intellectual traditions and questions, or you can do very solid disciplinary training. And I, I think that that comment um, kind of gives a light to that. It's, it's really useful to kind of see how these things can be complementary. Yeah, absolutely. And one, in terms of one relatively easy broader departmental change that I, that I think could help is just incorporating more public focused work by philosophers into graduate level work. Oh, that's great advice. Um, that's, that's not hard to do. It models the skill. It's often you know, for students, especially students who are new to a topic, seeing a public presentation of a topic before getting the traditional scholarly things, I think would help a lot. So that's that's low hanging fruit. The harder question of how to incorporate public engaged activities and public engaged assignments, I think it's trickier. But um, I think not, for one thing, not trying to reinvent the wheel, there's resources out there um, there's the Public Philosophy Network. There's a Engaged Philosophy group that's put together lots of great things. Um, so just cluing people into that. I would like to see there be sort of a consistent theme throughout of, you know, here's what public philosophy looks like. Here's what traditional academic philosophy looks like. Here's how they can complement each other. Here's how they differ. Mm -hmm. And then that just being something that students have their eye on in some form, even if it's a relatively small way from the beginning, yeah. as they're thinking about their broader trajectory. This episode of Going Public was made possible with help from the University of Washington Simpson Center for the Humanities staff, particularly C.R. Grimmer, who is also the communications manager at the Simpson Center, our sound editor, Oliver Gordon, and of course, support from the Mellon Foundation. The Mellon Initiative at the Simpson Center Reimagining the Humanities PhD and Reaching New Publics, Catalyzing Collaboration, 
was led by Kathleen Woodward, Director of the Mellon Initiative, Director of the Simpson Center, and UW Professor of English, Rachel Artiaga, Assistant Director of the Simpson Center and Associate Program Director of the Mellon Initiative, and myself, Annie Dwyer, Assistant Program Director of the Mellon Initiative. We hope you check out additional episodes of Going Public on our website at www.simpsoncenter.org slash goingpublic and wherever you get your podcasts.